Good evening, everybody. Uh, it, my name's Tim Besley. I'm a member of the economics department here at the LSE, uh, and it's a, a great pleasure uh, for me to welcome you all here with a very warm welcome to this event uh, in conversation with Michael Sandel, Capitalism, Democracy, and the Public Good. Before we get going, uh, I have three small tasks. First, I want to tell you a little bit about the Marshall Institute, which is the uh, host for this event. Uh, second, I, of course, want to introduce you to our guest. And then finally, uh, I'd like to uh, sketch how we plan uh, to run the event. First of all, a word on the, the Marshall Institute. It was created following a very generous gift from Sir Paul Marshall to study private contributions to the public good. It will combine research, teaching, and outreach relevant to this wider mission. And I'm pleased to welcome here Nava Ashraf, Stefan Chambers, and Sir Tom Hughes-Hallett are all playing major leadership roles uh, in taking the Institute forward. Our guest tonight fits perfectly with the Institute's ambition, both to foster academic excellence and to influence thinking. Michael Sandel teaches political philosophy at Harvard University, where he's the Anne T. and Robert M. Bass Professor of Government. His course, Justice, is the first Harvard course to be made freely available online and on television. And I can personally attest to its influence as it was followed online by my youngest son, who will start a degree program which includes philosophy next year. Uh, Michael is remarkable for the way that he bridges public and academic life. His work engages with big moral and civic issues. His books include What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets, Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, Democracy's Discontent, America in Search of a Public Philosophy, and Liberalism and the Limits of Justice. I first encountered Michael's work when I read What Money Can't Buy on a very long plane journey, and I have to say it was a real page-turner, and by the end of the journey, I'd already written a brief reaction to it, which was later published in the Journal of Economic Literature. And ever since, I've been recommending it to my friends and colleagues, in a world in which so much of academic life is compartmentalized, Michael is able to de demonstrate how debating the right issues transcends narrow disciplinary interests. In the US, Michael served on the President's Council on Bioethics and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's a graduate of Brandeis University where he re and received his doctorate at Oxford University where he was a Rhodes Scholar. He's given a string of prestigious lectures the location tonight will seem humdrum in comparison to his appearances at St. Paul's Cathedral, the Sydney Opera House, the Public Theatre in New York Central Park, and a 14,000-seater venue in Seoul. The past year has seen events that go right to the heart of Michael's interests. What appears to have been a dominant liberal consensus has been blown apart and is forcing us to ask important questions about what a good society is and how to achieve it. Uh, Michael is just the sort of public intellectual who can enrich our thinking on this. And it's a genuine privilege for all of us to have him here at the LSE uh, this evening. Now, I'm going to invite Michael to begin by offering us a few remarks. Uh, then I'm going to uh, spend a little time in conversation picking up on some of the themes. Then I'm going to invite some members of the Marshall Institute to perhaps pose a few questions themselves, since they're particularly interested in the themes of Michael's talk and work, and then finally we'll open it up to the audience for questions and broader discussion. So Michael, welcome to the LSE and thank you very much.
Thank you, Tim. I especially love the part about your son now going into <laughs> philosophy, but I'm afraid you might hold me responsible. <laughs> well, we're going to have a conversation in a bit, but I thought I would begin by saying a little bit about the current political moment. Five weeks into the Trump presidency, many around the world worry that the American Republic is tilting. Wow. <laughs> you, th you think we didn't choreograph this very carefully? <laughs> I, will we have that at key, <laughs> I hope at key moments throughout the time. The fear is that the American Republic is tilting toward tyranny. Even John McCain recently voiced alarm at what he called the hardening resentment we see toward immigrants and refugees and minority groups, especially Muslims the growing inability and even unwillingness to separate truth from lies. And he worried that, quote, more and more of our fellow citizens seem to be flirting with authoritarianism. Now, much of American public life is divided, but a, a part of it engaged in feverish, worry, outrage, protest against the Trump presidency. And I think there's still a sense of shock, not unlike the sense of shock in the wake of Brexit in the UK. What I would like to suggest is how those who share these worries might respond. And some of this may, some of my suggestion may surprise you or even trouble you, which is why we'll have a discussion. Donald Trump was elected by tapping a wellspring of anxieties and frustrations. And it seems to me of legitimate grievances to which the mainstream parties have offered no compelling answer. So for those who are worried about Trump, and I would say this also applies to those who are shocked in the wake of Brexit, it's not enough to mount a politics of protest and resistance. It is also necessary to engage in a politics of persuasion. And such a politics has to begin by trying to understand the discontent that is roiling politics in democracies around the world today. Like the triumph of Brexit, the election of Trump was an angry verdict on decades of rising inequality and a version of globalization that benefits those at the top but leaves ordinary people feeling disempowered. It was also a rebuke for a technocratic approach to politics 
that is tone deaf to the resentments of people who feel the economy and also the culture have left them behind. Now, some denounce the upsurge of populism as little more than a racist, xenophobic reaction against immigrants and multiculturalism. Others see it mainly in economic terms as a protest against the job losses brought about by global trade and new technologies. But it is a mistake, I think, to see only the bigotry in populist protest or to view it only as an economic complaint. To do so misses the fact that the upheavals of 2016 were a political response to a political failure of historic proportions. The right, when right-wing populism succeeds, it is usually a symptom of the failure of progressive politics. And that is the case today. The Democratic Party in the US has become, like I would say, the Labour Party in Britain, have become a party of a technocratic liberalism more congenial to the professional classes than to the blue-collar and middle-class voters who once constituted their base. Here's how it unfolded in the U.S. In the 1990s, the Clinton administration joined with Republicans in promoting global trade agreements and in deregulating the financial industry. The benefits of these policies flowed mostly to those at the top, but Democrats did little to address the deepening inequality, and the growing power of money in politics. Having strayed from its traditional mission of taming capitalism and holding economic power to democratic account, liberalism lost its capacity to inspire. Now, all that seemed to change when Barack Obama appeared on the political scene in his 2008 presidential campaign. He offered a stirring alternative to the managerial, technocratic language that had come to characterize liberal public discourse. He showed that progressive politics could speak a language of moral and spiritual purpose. But the moral energy and civic idealism he inspired as a candidate did not carry over into his presidency. Here's why. Assuming office in the midst of the financial crisis, he appointed economic advisors who had promoted financial deregulation during the Clinton years. With their encouragement, he bailed out the banks on terms that did not hold them to account for the behavior that had led to the crisis and offered little help for ordinary citizens who had lost their homes. His moral voice muted, Obama placated rather than articulated the seething public anger toward Wall Street. Lingering anger over the bailout cast a shadow over the Obama presidency and would fuel a mood of populist protest that reached across the political spectrum. On the left, the Occupy movement and then the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. On the right, the Tea Party movement and ultimately the election of Trump. The populist uprising in the U.S. and Britain and Europe is a backlash against elites of the mainstream parties, but its most conspicuous casualties have been liberal and center-left political parties, the Democratic Party in the U.S., 
the Labour Party in Britain, the Socialist Party in France. Before they can hope to win back popular support, progressive parties need to rethink their mission and purpose. And to do so, they should learn from the populist protest that displaced them, not by replicating its xenophobia and strident nationalism, but by taking seriously the legitimate grievances with which these ugly sentiments are entangled. Such rethinking should begin with the recognition that these grievances are not only economic, they're also moral and cultural. They're not only about wages and jobs, but also about social esteem. Well, how might that rethinking proceed? Here are four themes that progressive parties need to grapple with if they're to begin to address the anger and resentments that royal politics today. The four themes are income inequality, what I would call meritocratic hubris, the dignity of work, and patriotism and national community. Let me just say a quick word about each of those four themes. The standard response to income inequality is to call for greater equality of opportunity. Retraining workers whose jobs have disappeared due to globalization and technology, improving access to higher education, removing barriers of race, ethnicity, and gender. This is a familiar program, and it's summed up in the slogan that those who work hard and play by the rules should be able to rise as far as their talents will take them. But this slogan now rings hollow. In today's economy, it's not easy to rise. Americans have traditionally worried less than Europeans about inequality, believing that whatever one's starting point in life, it's possible with hard work to rise from rags to riches. But today, this belief is in doubt. Mobility has hardened. Americans born to poor parents tend to stay poor as adults. In fact, it's easier to rise from poverty in Canada and Germany and Sweden and many European countries than it is in the U.S. or in the U.K. This may explain why the rhetoric of opportunity fails to inspire as it once did. And so progressives should reconsider the assumption that mobility can compensate for inequality. They should reckon directly with inequalities of power and wealth rather than rest content with the project of helping people scramble up a ladder whose rungs go f grow further and further apart. That's the inequality question. But the problem runs deeper, which brings me to meritocratic hubris. The relentless emphasis on creating a fair meritocracy in which social positions reflect effort and talent, this emphasis has a corrosive effect on the way we interpret our success or the lack of it. The notion that the system rewards talent and hard work encourages the winners to consider their success their own doing. And so to look down upon those less fortunate than, than themselves. 
Meanwhile, those who lose out, how do they make sense of their condition? Well, they may complain that the system is rigged, that the winners have cheated and manipulated their way to the top, or they may harbor the demoralizing thought that their failure is their own doing, that they simply lack the talent and drive to succeed. Now, typically, the response draws on both of these understandings. And when these sentiments commingle, as they invariably do, they make for a volatile brew of anger and resentment against elites. And this is the volatile sentiment, I think, that accounts for the fury of populist protest. Though himself a billionaire, Trump understands and exploits this resentment. Unlike Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, who spoke constantly of opportunity, Trump scarcely mentions the word. Instead, he offers blunt talk of winners and losers. It's also interesting. If you listen to Bernie Sanders during his campaign, he rarely spoke of opportunity. He spoke about inequalities of income and power and wealth. He spoke about the role of money in politics. He did not speak of opportunity. He and Trump had that in common. Liberals and progressives have so valorized a college degree, both as an avenue for advancement and as the basis for social esteem, that they have difficulty understanding the hubris a meritocracy can generate and the harsh judgment it imposes on those who haven't gone to college. The third theme is to do with the dignity of work. The loss of jobs to technology and outsourcing has coincided with a sense that society accords less respect to the kind of work the working class does. As economic activity has shifted from making things to managing money, as the economy has become financialized, as society has lavished outsized rewards on hedge fund managers and, and bankers, the esteem accorded work in the traditional sense has become fragile and uncertain. New technology may further erode the dignity of work. Now we see some Silicon Valley visionaries anticipating a time when robots and artificial intelligence will render many of today's jobs obsolete. And so to ease the way for such a future, to clear the path for it, they propose paying everyone a basic income. And so what was once justified on ethical grounds as a safety net for all citizens is now offered as a way to soften the transition and diminish the opposition to a world without work, which raises a big, looming question. Should we, is such a world, a world without work, is that a prospect to welcome or to resist? This question, I think, will be central to politics in the coming years. And to think it through, political parties will have to grapple with the meaning of work and its place in a good life. Finally, Patriotism and national community 
free trade agreements and immigration are the most potent flashpoints of populist fury. Now, on one level, these are economic issues. Opponents argue that free trade agreements and immigration threaten local jobs and wages. Proponents of free trade reply that they help the economy in the long run. But the passion these issues evoke suggests that something more is at stake. Workers who believe that their country cares more for cheap goods and cheap labor than for the job prospects of its own people feel betrayed. This sense of betrayal often finds ugly, intolerant expression, a hatred of immigrants, a strident nationalism that vilifies Muslims and other outsiders, a rhetoric of taking back our country. Now, liberals reply by condemning the hateful rhetoric and insisting on mutual respect and multicultural understanding. But this principled response, valid though it is, fails to address an important set of questions implicit in the populist complaint. What is the moral significance, if any, of national borders? Do we owe more to our fellow citizens than we owe to citizens of other countries? Is patriotism a virtue or a vice, a kind of prejudice for our own kind? In a global age, should we cultivate national identities or instead aspire to a cosmopolitan ethic of universal human concern? These questions may seem daunting. They are surely a far cry from the small things we discuss in politics these days. But the Trumpian moment highlights the need to rejuvenate democratic public discourse, to address the big questions people care about, including moral and cultural questions. Disentangling the intolerant aspects of populist protest from the legitimate grievances it conveys is no easy matter. But it is important to try. Understanding these grievances and creating a politics that can respond to them is the most pressing political challenge of our time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Michael. Uh, given us so many things uh, to think about. Let me, um, let me start, though, in, on the topic of the, the crisis of social democracy uh, or of left-leaning politics. And I, I, my sense is that if you, the roots of all that is, are actually quite long-standing. I mean, in a certain sense, you can say in the mid-1990s, the, the Labour Party here learned to love Thatcherism. And effectively, what Tony Blair was elected on was a kind of Thatcherism with a human face. The left, in other words, learned to embrace and to love the market. Uh, and it was, a, it was under a, democratic, uh, a Democrat president in the U.S. that the Glass-Steagall Act was repealed, which That's ultimately right. people said was the, uh, the final, uh, at least played a major role in precipitating the global financial crisis. So there was a certain sense in which the left 
stopped being traditional left right. and became a certain left that learned to love the market. Now, you yourself and many of your writings have been quite critical of markets and the consequence of market values. So doesn't this all really stem from a point in history where the left, for some reason or another, and I'm not sure we want to engage in some sociological analysis of this, switch from what had been in general a great scepticism about markets yeah. to a wholesale embracement of market ideas and market ethos. Isn't that really the critical moment? And that's really the mid-1990s. And what we're seeing now, in a certain sense, is playing through yes. a process that I think is more long-standing than, than just the recent events. Oh, yes, yes. I think that's exactly right. When uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were elected, it was on an explicit position that um, government is the problem and markets are the solution. And when they passed from the political scene and were replaced by center-left figures, Tony Blair in, in the UK, Bill Clinton in the US, Gerhard Schroeder in Germany, they, just as you say, Tim, they, they moderated but consolidated that market faith. They didn't challenge its premise, the premise of the faith being that markets and market mechanisms are the primary instruments for achieving the public good. Now, and, and I do think that the politics that has played out in the, la in the last year is the measure of the crowning failure of that uh, way of um, reorienting uh, social democratic or liberal politics. Now you asked or you wondered why that was the case. On one level, it seemed an obvious electoral strategy to move uh, the Democratic Party and the Labor Party to the center uh, as a response to the defeats uh, that resulted in the Thatcher and Reagan election. But I think there was a further deeper impulse that led uh, the, those parties not to challenge or to have a real public debate about the role and reach of markets in a good society. And it goes to something deep in the public philosophy of liberalism that's interested me for, for quite a long time. Part of the appeal of market thinking, quite apart from its delivering the goods economically, part of the appeal, I think, is that markets seem to be a neutral instrument for resolving messy, contested, morally controversial questions in politics. And this, they, they seem to offer a way of deciding hard questions without engaging in substantive conceptions of virtue and the good life. And the search for a public philosophy that has that feature, that aspires to that kind of neutrality or at least abstention from substantive conceptions, moral and spiritual conceptions. That goes way back in liberalism, but it, it gathers force and prominence in, in the 1980s and 90s. And I think that's what accounts for the appeal of the market logic, beyond its purely economic advantages. 
And so in order to rethink uh, social democratic or progressive politics, I think it's necessary to rethink that fundamental assumption, whether it's possible or desirable to have a kind of public discourse that avoids engaging with substantive conceptions of the good life. So um, to some extent, though, you might think the sort of genie is out of the bottle now in the sense that one thing I've always been struck by in your work is the way you've, you've thought about the, the influence that m- the market system has on individual values and the way a society thinks about the good life. So to some extent, once you become a market-oriented society, don't those values become so ingrained that it's very hard to pull back? And isn't that part of the issue that the left-leaning parties now have, is that that, that particular genie, as I say, is out of the bottle? Well, the, um, I, I would, uh, to shift the metaphor slightly from the genie in the bottle, I would say that way of thinking about public life and public discourse has become deeply ingrained. Um, The reason I hesitate to say the genie is out of the bottle is we know it can't be put back in. Whereas I don't think think that it's uh, inevitable that uh, modern pluralist democratic societies need uh, to abstain forever from engaging with big moral and spiritual Questions. We have glimpses of what this might look like in, in political rhetoric through history. Um, and I think uh, we should not simply throw up our hands and say we're so in the grip of market or consumerist-driven self-understandings that there's no possible space for a um, morally more robust kind of public discourse. To the contrary, I think that's the project now is to try to lean against those powerful uh, tendencies in the public culture and in public discourse. One, one thing that's very striking if you look at, uh, at Thomas Piketty's work on the evolution of inequality is how the big falls in inequality, which seem to be sustained, came both before, during, and after the Second World War, when due to various forces in society, a very different set of values perhaps were were put in place. Um, On that basis, you could argue we're sort of reverting to to something that's more the norm now, that that was the exceptional period in history, the degree of collectivism and view in that that we should build institutions that provide public health care or whatever it would be. But really that was rather than being the norm, that's the exception. I, I, and the question is, how, how can one... I mean, the Second World War was a very particular event, and one wouldn't want to have to say that the society should go through such a traumatic experience to build oh. that sense of collectivism. Yeah. But is there something out there? The financial crisis certainly didn't seem to have that effect on collectivism. So is there something out there, something that will rebuild collectivism and that, that ethos that, that you can see on the horizon? Then? Right. I would hesitate, Tim, a little to fly under the banner of collectivism. Mm-hmm. But I would say trying to um, imagine forms of solidarity and community and the mutual obligation of citizens that are more demanding but also more inspiring than what we're accustomed to today. I, wouldn't, uh, I think your example of the financial crisis is a very telling one. I think many of us assumed that when the financial crisis came, it was such a dramatic demonstration 
of what happens when uh, market thinking and market values uh, run unconstrained. I think most of us assumed that this finally would be a moment after this three-decade period when there would be a renewed public debate about, not just about uh, the uh, financial industry, but about the role and the proper role of markets in democratic societies. And yet, what was striking about the aftermath of the financial crisis is that debate never happened. It didn't. There was some limited debate about regulatory reform, and even such reforms as were enacted, and here I'm speaking mainly of the U.S. You'll tell me whether this is the case in the U.K. Um, they were... Uh, uh, they were limited in their scope and ambition by the powerful role of the, uh, of the financial industry in Wall Street. The bailout terms did not in any way uh, change the boards of directors, despite the fact that it was the taxpayers who were bailing out these companies. There were no requirements limiting the ability of those financial, uh, those banks that had been bailed out from turning right around and lobbying against reform, which is exactly what they did. Now, that was a political mistake uh, in the handling of the bailout. So partly it, the, the regulatory reform was diminished by that lobbying. And then the implementation has eroded even further because the, the lobbying power is so considerable even at the executive regulatory agency level that the, the big problem of too big to fail has not really been addressed. And uh, the, so we didn't have a debate except uh, over regulation, which itself was a kind of shrunken debate, constrained debate. And we certainly didn't have this broader uh, debate. And now we've had a second shock. If the financial crisis was the shock that didn't prompt rethinking about the terms of public discourse. Maybe Brexit and the election of Trump will be the shock that will bestir uh, those who care about social democratic or progressive politics to undertake a more ambitious project of redefining their mission. I hope so. That's what I'm trying to encourage. So far, I don't see much progress in that direction, though admittedly people are still in a kind of state of shock, outrage, confusion, which I think itself is a serious condition that needs to be overcome. So much of the reaction uh, in, well, I think in, you'll tell me if I'm wrong about this, in Britain in the aftermath of Brexit, certainly in the US in the aftermath of Trump, is that liberals and progressives and social democrats are so outraged that they're seized by a kind of paralysis. I think we need, uh, I think what we need is a kind of economy of outrage, if only to muster, to summon the discipline and the focus necessary to move beyond a politics of protest to a politics of persuasion, which gets back to figuring out why it is that a large number of people 
did not find inspiring or attractive or compelling what was on offer from uh, progressive parties. So one thing that's always intrigued me in, in your writings is you, you talk a lot about markets and their downfalls and you talk a lot about the values that come with markets and support markets. But you generally don't talk a lot about what the right role for the state is. And even when you talked about these issues here, income inequality, the meritocratic... What, one needs to turn those into, into clearly defined policy platforms for a state. Is that the way you think about it? Or is it really about public discourse influencing values first? And with that change, that's where the public action comes from. How do you see that? Or do you really think, it, th at the end of the day, it's, it's about having a stronger, more focused set of state interventions? Uh, because at the moment, the parties that offer those don't seem to be getting a lot of electoral traction. If they don't, right. That's why there's a broader work to be done in, in framing the, uh, the, the purpose and mission of politics. So of the two choices you gave me, Tim, going straight for better policies that the state can implement, or trying to change public discourse, the public culture, a debate about values, recasting the terms of public discourse with the hope of then persuading people to reconceive the role of the state, of those two options, I'm very much for the second. Because I don't think you can address these grievances or speak to them convincingly simply by saying, oh, we've got you know, a revised policy platform. I think it goes deeper to that, to the moral and public culture. But here's, here's one small example. When people, um, when people feel that, they're, that, a great, that elites don't care about their jobs, and therefore engage in free trade agreements that outsource jobs or immigration policies that create uh, uh, competition for jobs and wages to their detriment. They may have two reactions, people who feel aggrieved. They may say, that's unfair, especially against the background of rising inequality in a background that includes lavish rewards for the financial industry. They may look at all that and say, that's unfair. They may also look at that and say, that's insulting and humiliating. Now, those are two different complaints, although they overlap. The first complaint is um, one that progressive policy, uh, uh, parties are very familiar with and able to address and speak about often. But I think they are tone deaf here. By this I mean progressive par parties and elites are tone deaf to the second kind of complaint. That it's not just unfair, it's insulting, it's humiliating. That's the social esteem point. The work we do isn't recognized. Our membership as fellow citizens is ignored by cosmopolitan elites who are concerned with the aggregate GDP and sending jobs elsewhere, and so on. So it's that, it's the tin ear to that second kind aspect of the complaint that I think needs to be reoriented in the thinking and in the public rhetoric of 
progressive parties. And that's why I don't think new policy prescriptions alone can do that. And I think a very good example of that is, I don't know if you've been following um, Anne Case and Angus Steeton's work on mortality among white men in the US and a big rise, a very striking rise of immortality and the big issue being the cause because it it appears to be a product of self-destructive behavior, either alcohol abuse or abuse of prescription painkillers. Right, uh, opioid addiction and so on. Opioids being being one of the big big issues. Now, what's interesting about that is... And suicide. And suicide rates as as well. And, And one of the key issues that they pull out about that is the destruction of esteem yes. in, in, in pulling people out of jobs where traditionally they might have status as auto workers or yes. whatever it would be. And you cannot replicate this. You can give them jobs. You can give them handouts. Right. But you cannot give them the kind of social esteem which they enjoyed in the occupations which they were displaced from. Yes. There's no, I mean, maybe you have a good, good, good thought about this, but there's no obvious policy implication if handouts, which is one of the traditional responses to say, well, we can compensate people. That's the kind of economist response for putting people out right, of work. Right. Uh, to create a, or restore those, right. those values that people care about. And that's yes. what makes it such a very, very difficult issue. I think. Yes. And I think that research is enormously important and suggestive for the kinds of themes that I've been describing. And they've shown empirically the very dark effects. And these are effects that couldn't possibly come. No, uh, people don't um, commit suicide because they think there's something unfair. They tend not to. But if they're humiliated, if they're deprived of a place in the world of value and esteem, if no one needs what they have to do or values the contribution they make, even if they're given what the economists call a a side payment or compensation, um, that doesn't begin to address the sense of social exclusion. So I think that kind of research is very telling and speaks to this precisely this challenge. Okay, I'm going to open up the conversation a little bit now and uh, see if any of my colleagues, uh, Nava, perhaps from the Marshall Institute, if you wish to... Now, we're going to have a roving mic, so you'll need to just hold off till the mic. Someone got the microphones back there to bring down? Oh, it's at the front already. So if you just bring it, bring it here. So what we're going to do is have one or two questions, perhaps from, I don't know if anyone else in the Marshall Institute. Narva, do you have a question? Uh, and then we'll open it up to the floor in general. Right. Narva, by the way, is the research director of the Marshall Institute. Wonderful. Thanks for the, the talk and being here. Um, you've written about the degrading, morally corrosive effect of markets, um, particularly in market valuation and exchange of certain goods and, and services. And this has had a widespread effect on the policy discourse. I've seen it personally in a, in a lot of uh, discourses with developing country governments mm. in the conversation around how to compensate teachers and health workers. Mm. So the, the argument that's made is that we don't want to increase salaries because that would actually crowd out the pro-social motivation for the reason for doing it. You may attract the, the, the kind of money-grubbing people we don't want in these mm-hmm. professions. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge, of course, is, is twofold. One is that any evidence of this kind of crowd-out is actually increasing in the other direction often, that there could actually be crowd-in, mm-hmm. having come the more recent evidence in this field. But secondly, that from a moral perspective, 
it's asking of people who have very little income to give only from altruistic benefit in what right. we might call the pro-social occupations of teaching right. and health work. Right. When in fact what we might want to do is give them more income as a way of consecrating that money and that right. market activity. Right. Yeah, that's very good. Thank you f- for that. Uh, may I reply directly yeah, yeah, to sure, that? Yeah, sure, uh, I certainly would not suggest or endorse the idea that, especially in the developing world, teachers should be paid less rather than more to make sure they're doing it for the love of it. (laughs) (laughs) And they use my book to argue for that? (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, we'll have to find those people and try, <laughs> and try to straighten them out, whoever they are. Because I think that's impl- applying too wooden. <laughs> it's making too wooden an, an application of what I was describing. It's true that, uh, and I did, uh, and that I was arguing that there can be a crowding out effect, a corrosive effect on norms and motivations if money or market values... Uh, displace other norms, including doing something, teaching or learning, for the love of it. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay people fairly, (laughs) number one. Uh, It doesn't mean that teachers should not be paid properly. But more than that, and I think you were suggesting this point as well, if If I'm right to claim that markets are not inert in the sense that they don't... uh, My argument is against some economic models that assume markets are inert in the sense that they don't change the meaning of the goods being exchanged. I think that markets and money have an expressive significance and that means... There can be a crowding out effect, a corrosive effect on norms sometimes. And as, as you say, Nava, there can also be a crowding in effect. Sometimes paying teachers more can not only give them more money to spend, can enhance their social esteem and recognition. So my main point was that markets are not value neutral that they convey meaning. They have an expressive uh, impact. But in this case, paying the teachers more would most likely have a very desirable expressive impact, saying, uh, heightening the prestige and importance of teaching. And so I agree entirely on this example with your suggestion I'm distressed to learn about how this is being applied, and we can work together to try to, uh, try to correct that, what I would take to be mis- misapplication. Yeah, thank you for that. Stefan, do you, do you have a question? So Stefan Chambers is the executive director of the, the Marshall um, First of all, thank you very much, um, and thank you for the expression meritocratic hubris, um, which has set me thinking, and, and one of the things it prompts is the question, what does its opposite look like? What would kind of meritocratic humility look like? And how do how yeah. might progressives stop its opposite being equally captured? Okay, great question. 
the opposite of meritocratic, well, if meritocratic hubris, one way of thinking about it, and we see it all around us, is the tendency of those on top to inhale too deeply of their success. (laughs) To assume that I landed on top thanks to my own doing, my own merit and virtue, and therefore I deserve to be here. And by implication, those down there may deserve to be there too, though we won't say that too publicly. But what's interesting, if we go, and I'll come to the contrast in a moment, but if you look at the current, how very often narrative and journalistic accounts of what lies behind the populist fury often mentions anger at the sense of that elites are looking down disdainfully, the smugness of elites. And this seems like a kind of stray sociological observation. Who knows if it's true? But I think it does touch, that's what meritocratic hubris is about. And it goes back to, it's interesting to remember where the term meritocracy was coined by Michael Young in his book, The Rise of the Meritocracy, in the late 50s. Now, meritocracy these days has been seen as as a term of praise, a way of avoiding... uh, avoiding nepotism and awarding positions based on merit. But Michael Young's book was a dystopian vision. He wrote as a critic of what he saw as a likely unfolding um, meritocracy, and he saw the harsh face of it. And he said, look, in a class-bound aristocratic society, at least those on top know that they landed there thanks to the accident of birth. At least they know that back, you know, in the Downton Abbey days. But if you come to believe, and if a society comes generally to believe, because this is never just idiosyncratic, it kind of informs social self-understandings throughout our culture. He said, once we come to, once we perfect this meritocracy, break down these barriers, that's a good thing, but it goes with a certain way of interpreting Success, And he was right. He saw that half a century ago. And now it's come true. And so what's the opposite of that? I think the opposite sensibility is that those who land on top have a kind of humility in the face of their success. They recognize the contingency of their good fortune. And with that appreciation of contingency and luck, whether it's luck for various opportunities in life or luck at having the talents that society today happens to lavish with reward, um, that with that sense of humility can come a sense of obligation to exercise those talents and gifts and good fortune in ways that contribute to the common good. So that's the sensibility that is the alternative to the meritocratic hubris. It's a kind of humility that generates a sense of mutual obligation to share one's good fortune and to view that as a kind of obligation. 
Okay, I'm going to open up now more widely to, to the audience. Can I, there's lots of you I know want to get in, so I, 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 can I ask you all to first of all say who, who you are when you ask your question, and also to keep it very brief, if you, if you would, so we can maximize the number of people who get in. Now, just so I get, the, so there's just two roving mics, so I'm going to try and sort of sing. So if you go down about five rows back, go down, keep walking, chap on the left wearing a, a Harvard uh, T-shirt. Just go over here. <laughs> You're in the wrong place, uh, by the way. Although appropriate for this evening. Uh, okay. Yeah, uh, I'm Simon Chen. Uh, I'm a master's student, uh, a major in political economy. So that my question is about the relations uh, between capitalism and democracy. Uh, previously, we always have a solid presumption that the capitalism made most of the private life uh, out of the politics. So the freedom should be a foundation of the self-government democracy. However, suppose we see an authoritarian country becoming more powerful after the reform of market privatization, a quasi-capitalist humanity. Lately, if we see it exerts economic muscle, such as mobilizing people to boycott and block someone they regarded as offensive, such as supports pro-democracy movement mm -hmm. from their market, to what extent could we justify that kind of patriotism is consistent with public good? That's my question. Thank you. Okay. Well, I'm going to collect them in batches of three. So I'm looking for someone on the left here, just geographically at least. Uh, up there on the left. <laughs> uh, yeah, just along. Yeah, up, up there. Keep going. Down there, yeah. Uh, just start speaking. They should turn it up if it's not working. Um, thank you very much for your talk. and how this is How can progressive politics politically construct feelings of inclusion that are not, you know, mediated by sense of nation, country, ethnicity? Okay, did you get, mm -hmm. you get that? And I'll take one more. I'll go up, up here. Um, go right to the back, actually. Go, go, yeah, take the one at the back there. Hi, my name's Alex, and I'm a business analyst, so I probably will get a lot of scorn in this room. Um, my question, Michael, was about what you spoke about beautifully, shifting from politics of protest to politics of persuasion. And it sort of goes off what the other gentleman said. I guess my question is, what are the tools of politics of persuasion? Is it direct action? Is it community volunteering? social media, like what we saw in the Arab Spring or in Turkey, but the flip side of that being that people can feel more excluded on social media. So what are the tools of the politics of persuasion, and how do we gain that? Okay, Michael, over to you. All right, well, to start with the last, I think all of the tools you mentioned can be important tools. And one of the challenges of engaging in a politics of persuasion is presented by 
the condition of the media today, which um, is for the most part inhospitable. There are exceptions, but inhospitable to reasoned public uh, discourse and debate on big questions, including questions of value. So I think we need to take seriously that uh, not all of the tools are readily available or uh, hospitable. I think that part of the uh, politics of persuasion also needs to uh, think about possibly ways of creating new media platforms and forums for public discourse for just that reason. The other two questions actually were similar in some way because um, one was about inclusion without descending into the harsh side of nationalism and, and ethnic differences and without inflaming them. And Simon's question was about um, nationalism and authoritarianism, if I understood it correctly. And I think to respond to both of those questions, one of the great dangers of the empty kind of public discourse to which we've become accustomed, the public discourse that tries to avoid uh, engaging in morally contentious questions, including questions about belonging and membership and mutual obligation. One of the dangers is that creates a vacuum that won't last for long and never does. And when there's a vacuum of meaning in politics, it is invariably filled, eventually, uh, by... Uh, harsh, intolerant forms of meaning. And in present circumstances, and including in the cases that were raised, that often takes the form of a kind of harsh or strident nationalism. And so part of the, one of the challenges for market-driven societies that have put enormous importance on GDP and economic growth and market values, is there tends, that tends to go along with a hollowing out uh, of meaning and of shared meanings and purposes and values. And since people, want, people can't abide uh, uh, that kind of emptiness of meaning in public life in the terms of their common uh, life, and so the tendency is to, that creates a situation ripe for narrow, intolerant uh, uh, fundamentalisms or forms of nationalism. And I think that's one of the ingredients that empowers the populism that we're seeing today in, in the U.S. and in Europe. And we also see the rise of nationalism uh, responding to a different kind of vacuum in other parts of the world. Okay, um, can we come down down here and, and pass along? Keep going. I'll. There we go. Uh, thank you for the wonderful talk. Uh, my question is regarding one of the counters to your argument on markets. Um, one of the authors I read who wrote a response to your book said that capitalism has done more for the poor 
than any other economic model and countries uh, capitalistic countries have shown uh, an upward trend in the standard of living of the poor and they are the ones who benefited the most compared to other models which are supposedly pro poor so i just want to hear your views on that do you, do you think that, i know we're taking do you think they were right no i don't <laughs> <laughs> all right then thank you I've got, okay, well, if yeah, you, go ahead. I mean, Deirdre McCloskey had this wonderful book last year called Bourgeois Equality. I don't know if you read it, which was essentially, in, in, she's a, a very distinguished economic historian who made exactly this argument. I mean, of course, it's contestable, but, but it's, right. a, it's a more than respectable view that if you look over human history, the one engine of poverty reduction that we know has worked better than any other is, the, is, is rolling out the extent of the market. Is that what you right. Should I take that on now that we've, well, we've elaborated on since that I, point? Since, I, since I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm interested in the answer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My answer is, uh, I go, what's your name? Shohini. Sh- Shohini. Shohini. Um, I share Shohini's skepticism about that, criticism, (laughs) for the following reason. Um, In fact, I think that's one of the more polemical (laughs) criticisms uh, for the following reason. Um, Okay, capitalism has done a great deal of lifting people from poverty. I agree, and I'm not uh, against capitalism. I'm not writing against capitalism. I'm arguing for keeping capitalism in its place. My argument is uh, not against um, using uh, capitalism and market relations and, and uh, private property to uh, promote, uh, to, to organize the production of, of goods and services. My argument is that we've allowed market values and market thinking to dominate aspects of life far beyond the domain of commodities and consumer goods. So I think capitalism is a very good thing for lifting people out of poverty and for producing and uh, allocating flat screen televisions and cars and things like that. But I, I think that we have to be aware of the tendency of market economies to slide into market societies. We, we've shifted from, from having market economies to becoming market societies. That's my argument. So it's not, so, so the observing, as, as the critic did, and maybe others, that capitalism is a wonderful thing for alleviating uh, uh, poverty, misses that point. And, and countries that have enjoyed enormous benefits from capitalism have especially to resist this powerful tendency to extend market thinking and market relations into the domain of personal life, family life, social life, health, education, civic life, law, the media, and, and so on. That's, the, that's what my argument is about. So that, that's why I think it's slightly polemical. Okay, we'll go up, uh, up, up here. So where's the mic? So if you come down a little bit, uh, keep coming down, and then along that... Keep coming down, a couple more rows down, and along. I feel like I'm playing, remember that game Pac-Man or something, where you used to direct objects. Uh-huh. 
Thank you. Um, my question is related to the four things that you said progressives need to tackle. And I was just wondering whether the last one, so patriotism, is a symptom of the, our failure to tackle the other three. So, for example, if, you, if we do tackle um, the, sort of the idea of meritocracy, do you think that patriotism and the call for national, nationalism will in itself solve, will solve itself, or do you think that has to be tackled separately? When you reply to that, yeah, okay. reply to that now. Right. Um, I think they're connected, but I still think we need to ask, well, put it this way, they're, they're connected in that being in the grip of market-driven, meritocratic, hubristic ways of interpreting our success or lack of it is corrosive of national community sense of belonging, a sense that we are all in this together. If people really believe, let's say, if, if those on top really believe it's their own doing by dint of their own effort and talent, then it's hard to summon the sentiments that we were discussing before, that we are all in this together, that we have mutual obligations as citizens. So you're right. There's a connection between meritocratic hubris and the inability to articulate a convincing uh, sense of national community. But, so they are closely connected. If we addressed meritocratic hubris, would there be nothing more to say about national community? I'm not sure. We would still have to work out some account of what we owe our fellow citizens in virtue of being members of this community, including this national community. And we would have to figure out the implications of that sense of shared purpose or social solidarity, the implications of that for tough questions like free trade, immigration, the moral significance of borders. Those questions would still be left for us to contend with, even if we made progress in recasting the way we interpret our own success. Thank you for that. Okay, come, come down here, this gentleman on the end there, please. Pass it all the way along, thank you very much. Hello, uh, my name is Alessandro, I'm a PhD here at LSE. So my question, I would like to know your views on the role of technology. I believe that technology, to some extent, um, erodes um, common, uh, the sense of community, um, on many respect, and for, I want for to. For example, uh, for example, well, uh, the book of husband, like uh, the the brief century, I think it's called. Anyways, um, he was saying, well, it's the first generation in which we can basically enjoy ourselves alone because we listen to music alone, uh, we we play games alone, and you know we have a lot. We don't need others in a lot of respect, or we need them less than previous generation mm. to some extent. I yeah. don't think it completely, but right. does how that, to build... Does that ring true for you, uh, just as a description? <laughs> I mean, a description of where no, we are. No, I, okay, uh, I, I do believe we need a community and we need to build a sense of community, but I think technology, to some extent, uh, poses a problem. Yeah. So, yeah. so how to deal with it? Yeah, well, I, I think that's, that's right. There is... I think that social media, and we saw with the Arab Spring, there was great hope that 
Social media could be a way of communicating among people who are trying to work together to bring political change. So there are these moments that we've seen that enable people across space and distances and even national boundaries to coordinate their efforts in common purposes. So that's for the good. And yet, I don't think it's possible to have a, um, a politics, um, a politics of the common good that doesn't include in-person, face-to-face occasions and opportunities. I don't think that for all the benefits, civic and educational, of, of um, social media and online communication, that we can altogether um, replicate um, the ecclesia of ancient Athens or the Agora, where people gathered and encountered one another. And so I think one of the questions we need to put at the center of an attempt to rejuvenate public discourse and to rebuild community is to recreate or, or to, well, to, to re- rejuvenate public spaces and common places that bring people together in the course of their everyday lives. Common spaces where people gather, not necessarily because they've already decided to meet there for some political (coughs) protest or social movement, but downtown areas, public parks and recreation areas, public transportation, public schools, that uh, cultural centers, community centers, health facilities that traditionally have brought people together from different walks of life, different social backgrounds, different classes. Sports stadia is another example. And I talk about, as a metaphor, the skyboxification of, of life, uh, remembering maybe with excessive nostalgia, you'll think, that when I was a kid and went to a baseball game, everyone was rooting for the home team, and there were more and less expensive seats. But the most expensive seat when I was a kid going to watch baseball in Minnesota in the U.S. was $4.50, and it was a dollar in the bleachers. So it was a kind of class-mixing experience, inadvertent. We didn't go there saying, gee, I want to go for a class-mixing experience. <laughs> we went there because, you know, we loved sports. But the effect was that CEOs and mailroom clerks sat side by side and, and ate the same soggy hot dogs and drank the same stale beer and waited in the same long lines to go to the, the bathroom. And, and when it rained, everyone got wet. And then, in the 90s, came skyboxes, you know, luxury suites, VIP suites, and far above the stands where the common folk watch the game. And these are comfortable, and they're air-conditioned. And now, almost every stadium of major sports has these skyboxes. But it does make a difference to the experience, to the class-mixing civic experience going to a game. It's no longer true 
that everyone eats the same soggy hot dogs. It's no longer even true that everyone gets rained on when it gets wet when it rains. And I think that this is a metaphor for the uh, way in which in our society we've seen a kind of skyboxification writ large. Increasingly, those of affluence and those of modest means live and work and shop and play in separate places. We send our children to different schools. And this, I think, is deeply corrosive of the sense that we are in it, in this together. And so I think one of the biggest projects, this is going beyond the issue of technology and beyond the issue of forums for in, in the media, but I think it's, it's about the in-person encounters where people become accustomed to negotiating their differences and bumping up against people they wouldn't otherwise meet. Uh, democracy needs that. And that's why I think that new technologies, um, uh, some of them, make this more difficult, not less. Just to, to reinforce that point, one of the remarkable things about London is the public transport system, which yeah. is used. Yes. And I think it's no mistake the sense of community and belonging yes. is exactly a oh. shared experience, oh. often being on an overcrowded train, not being able to get home on time. But right. there is a sense of shared experience yes. which, which comes through being exposed to common both yes. hardships and benefits. And if you lived in a place where people get, uh, avoid the traffic by taking a helicopter, which is true in <laughs> a lot of places, that's the radical opposite. Yeah. So if you come down here, the, uh, we'll go right, right to the end of this row. Uh, keep coming down and to the end of this row, and then we'll come straight in front. We'll do two quick ones in a row. Or in fact, three in a row. I can see three, a cluster of three there. Let's, let's pass the mic around. And we'll do three together, keep them brief, and then we'll, we may get another round in, yeah? Hi there. Uh, my name's Tom. I'm a lawyer. Thanks very much for the talk. Um, my question is, if we concede the idea of neutrality and retreat from this sort of narrow technocratic debate in favour of uh, proper public discourse, uh, how do we um, avoid a scenario where a strong man sort of takes power in a dreadful autocratic scenario? How do we avoid the yeah, strong exactly. man uh, autocratic scenario? Okay, thank you. Okay, pass right in front, then just, just there, and then we'll do another diagonal. Um, hi, so you mentioned a lot about caring for the community, right, and people like, within the constraints of, let's say, a nation. So what kind of perspective should we adopt when we think of others, like, let's say, the refugee crisis? Is it of charity, of justice, or of practicality? Mm-hmm. Okay, and then in front again, thank you. and then we'll... Um, so my question is about um, political economics. Um, for example, Joseph Schumpeter said that um, considered creative destruction, destruction to be the essential fact about capitalism. And I know you said you're not anti-capitalist as such, but I think my question is still relevant. So mm-hmm. having said that, how possible is it to prioritise moral debate over markets if that makes mainstream parties unelectable because of their incompetence with the economy in a globalised world and using Jeremy Corbyn as an example of that? <laughs> okay, plenty, plenty for you to reflect on, Michael. Okay. <laughs> right. The way, to, uh, <laughs> the way to avoid the danger of 
strong men, autocratic figures, is uh, not to ignore nationalist sentiments, but to take them seriously and redirect them in a constructive way that takes seriously people's longing to feel a part of a national community, to honor that in ways that give positive expression to mutual obligations of citizens. Because the, in the absence of that, the way will be open for autocrats and strongmen to invoke a kind of um, harsh nationalism or strident nationalism that fills that void. Um, dealing with refugees should not be seen just as a matter of charity. I think it should be seen as a matter of justice. We've been talking about two domains of moral reflection here. One has to do with the special obligations we have to our fellow citizens, but that does not exclude uh, or diminish the importance of cultivating a sense of justice which carries with it a sense of obligation not only for our fellow citizens or neighbors or family members, but for human beings as such, especially human beings in dire uh, danger. Um, as far as uh, Joseph Schumpeter's creative destruction, um, it, it's often valorized, creative destruction, following Schumpeter. And a certain, cer dis certain kinds of destruction uh, can be creative. The tricky thing with uh, the capitalist uh, societies that we inhabit is that it's not always easy to distinguish the creative aspects of, of the uh, destructive force of capitalism from the corrosive ones. And that's why we can't simply sit back and say, we'll let markets sort out uh, these fundamental questions of policy and purpose. We have to deliberate as democratic citizens about the purposes and ends that should govern the uh, uh, capitalism as a potent, creative, and destructive force. Okay, let's be very quick here. So I'm going to go down this side this time. On the end of the row here, we'll probably have time for two very quick questions. Okay. Hi, thanks so much for the talk. Um, my name is Stefan. I'm a master's student here. My question is, what would you say to the, the utopian view that when both the hedge fund manager and the auto worker are out of a job due to technology and they're both collecting their universal basic income, um, uh, that there will be more room for precisely that face-to-face -face interaction, community building uh, <laughs> between those two people. Uh, isn't that the idea that you know, technology will save us? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we'll go up to the row behind. Okay, if we're very quick, you'll go there and then the end of the row. So <laughs> be very quick and then Michael. Uh, uh, hi, I'm Malik from Albania, and I see that you say we cannot apply the price mechanism to every market that arises. So what should, have, should replace it and where? Okay, now pass that along to the other direction, to the end of that row, and then 
uh, high. Um, in what way, when there's conflict in societies and between nations, in what way um, are people um, disagreeing not about ideology itself, but about how you um, express <coughs> express that ideology? So um, the people are disagreeing about different ways of, uh, of fighting. You know, you don't fight like this; you fight like this if you've got a problem. Okay, actually, pass it in front because that was where I intended it to go. Hi, I'm Katrina. Um, I'm doing a master's. Uh, my question is about democracy. Obviously, for democracy to work, people actually need to vote. Um, and as far as I remember, in the US election, only about 50% of people voted. Um, and I can obviously guess why that is. People don't think their votes make a difference or they didn't like the candidates. But what do you think can be done about it? And is it like education? Is it changing the voting system? Yeah. And what are your oh. suggestions? Okay. Okay. All right. I'll quickly try to address uh, those. Uh, the vote, it's partly a matter of changing the voting system, making voting easier, having fewer obstacles to registration. And this is right now a great political tussle between the parties about ease of registration and, and voting. But I don't think that's the only problem. In the U.S., uh, rates of turnout in elections uh, traditionally have been lower than in the U.K. and in Europe. It's only partly because of obstacles to, to voting and to registering. It's, um, it has a lot to do with whether people really believe that the alternatives before them matter. And so I think encouraging a, a greater voting turnout is partly a matter of process. Um, maybe holding the vote uh, over an extended period of time, which increasingly is the case. Uh, maybe having uh, election day be a, a public holiday, um, as well as easing the voting requirements. But that's just half the problem. The other problem is making the political alternatives compelling enough so that people will care enough to bestir themselves to vote. Um, as far as what would uh, the, the, the question from the Albanian delegation about what would, what, uh, if I'm critical of markets extending their reach into every sphere of life, what should replace markets or market values or market thinking? The answer to that, I think, is it depends on the domain of life we're talking about. If we're talking about access to health care, let's say. Uh, access to health care could be governed in, well, at least three ways. By money, who can afford to pay. By time, who queues up first, if you have very long queues. Or by need, who needs the care most, medical need. So uh, there, I, th I think we have to argue case by case, domain by domain. In the case of health, I would argue for the third over the first too, that medical need, not money, should determine access to health care. Now, that same principle doesn't necessarily apply in every domain. Who should have access to a Beyonce concert? <laughs> well, you could say, who really needs it the most? <laughs> <laughs> but nobody needs it. <laughs> And anyone who thinks they do should probably be banned from the concert. 
So there, it may be money or queuing. And this is put to the test sometimes when there is a queue and, uh, and for the tickets, and then the tickets are bought up by ticket touters or ticket scalpers who sell to the highest bidder, and they convert time into money. So that would be the debate there. Uh, access to education. Uh, that would be a further question. So the short answer is, it depends on the domain what principle of allocation is appropriate. And to answer that question, we have to engage in sometimes controversial debates about the meaning and purpose of the social practice, be it health or education or a concert, properly understood. Which is why economics can't be divorced from moral and political philosophy, by the way. Is that all right, Tim? All right. There was the question, the sharply put question about um, the basic, once we all have a basic income and the uh, hedge fund manager and the lorry driver are all out of work by technology and they all are collecting a basic income and doing what with their time? Going to Beyonce concerts or something <laughs> like that. Won't that foster a greater sense of community? Not necessarily. <laughs> Not necessarily. It all depends what they do with their time. And uh, there will still be forms of work. And will those forms of work be, if, if we're liberated by technology from work of toil and drudgery, it will still remain for us to figure out how to fill our lives in a meaningful way. Those technologies can be liberating if we find meaningful ways of filling our days. But they could actually be, uh, those technologies, a scourge and a source of oppression and emptiness if we don't, which brings me back to a theme that's come up, I guess, time and time in this discussion is that whether we're talking about markets or contending with the populist protest or facing what new technology may bring. It's a mistake to think we can confront any of those questions without engaging in public deliberation and reflection and argument about big questions, including what is the meaning of a good life? What is the meaning of the common good? Thank you very much, Michael.